details this morning from good sources. If you want to know the sources, one of them's up here. If you want to know the sources, I can lend you or I can send you the sources. I'm not a counselor or therapist, but I do know this well enough to know the scripture talks about it and to be able to teach it to you this morning. Just feel like I should put that little caveat in there. Let's look at this for a minute. Shame. Let's define shame for a minute. And there are several definitions of it, but the one that I think is most pertinent and definitely the one that caught my mind is this one. Unworthiness. Think about it for a minute. If you feel shame about something, almost always you can trace it back to feeling unworthy or un, um, you know, not good enough or that you may, shouldn't have something or that if someone found out, you might be considered lesser, right? Unworthiness is a good term. Now, how this relates, especially for our purposes this morning, which is very valid, is that when it comes to connection, when it comes to relationship, connection and relationship is at heart a willingness to be seen, and not just seen from a distance, but a willingness to be seen in full, a willingness to be seen as you are, a willingness to be seen holistically, as in every part of you, good, bad, ugly, and beautiful. That's the deepest, that's the most desired form relationship and connection, whenever you can be totally you with, in front of, and by someone, and they accept you. The thing is, whenever you put connection and that desire through the filter of shame, what happens? Many of us know, even if we don't know how to necessarily talk about it, when you put connection and relationship through the filter of shame, what happens is not just disconnection, but more so a fear of disconnection, a fear of what about me when people see it will cause them to disconnect from me. So you see, you don't even have to be disconnected in order for shame to be present in some sort of relationship because most likely, true or false, every one of us has something that maybe deep, deep, deep down either we have or we do struggle or have struggled with. If people knew this about me, would they still love me? If people knew this about me, would they still want to be around me? If people knew this about me, what would they think of me? Maybe you don't want to put a harsh term on it, but that's shame talking. Some sort of unworthiness within us which says, if only people knew, if only people saw, what would they think? If only people saw, they would, they would never want me. It happens to all of us. It's a human condition. So what researchers have done is that they have studied in very, very recent years people that while we all struggle with this fear of disconnection, with this fear of what if, researchers have studied people who intentionally and who report that they are indeed very happy. And it has to do with this sentence in a sense. I'm not whatever enough, Right? Whenever you have shame, it has to do with, and let's just go around here just for the sake of, of uh, putting some words on it. I'm not funny enough, talented enough, creative enough, tough enough, spiritual enough, experienced enough, good enough, I can't read upside down, mature enough, patient enough, famous enough, perfect enough, young enough, strong enough, smart enough, pretty enough, rich enough, funny enough, talented enough, and we're back around it. Maybe one of those rings a bell for you. Whenever it comes to people who are actually fulfilled in relationship and versus people who constantly worry and have the anxiety and have the stress and are constantly unfulfilled in this kind of relationship, whenever they struggle with this kind of sentence, what researchers are calling this is excruciating vulnerability. 
Now, isn't that such a good word? If something's excruciating, you can say something bad. Something's pretty terrible. It's excruciating. There's a certain, you know, pop to that one, which just makes it excruciating, isn't it? Excruciating vulnerability defined is when you are blatantly exposed, right? What's vulnerable mean? Well, it means to be open to attack. It means to be open to either physical or emotional attack, right? It's a soft spot. It's a weak point in your quote-unquote defenses. Excruciating vulnerability, researchers say, is when you are exposed blatantly, when you are almost forced open, when you have to confront something where you feel weak. And it's excruciating. How many have been in a situation where all of a sudden our weakest point got thrown at us and we went, Too many. (laughs) The flip side of this, however, are people that researchers call wholehearted people, or the state of being wholeheartedness, in which they not only report uh, satisfaction in their relationships, not only do they report satisfaction with themselves, but they have a whole different attitude. Instead of the first group of people which only confront their vulnerabilities when it's forced upon them, whenever they have to, excruciatingly, that's just just a horrible word. These kind of people, wholehearted people, do something very different. When it comes to vulnerability, they embrace it. You see the difference? One person says, I am not talented enough in this area, but maybe no one will know. Oh, shoot, someone exposed the fact that I don't know what I'm doing, now I've got to face this. Wholehearted people, on the other hand, embrace vulnerability in the way of saying, you know what, I'm not good at that. No, don't even trust me, don't even try. I will break that. Don't let me near it. You see the difference? Now, maybe it's a bit silly to talk about it that way, but think about it emotionally. Think about the difference of reckoning with your deepest, darkest fears of being exposed versus reckoning with them and saying, you know what, this is true. The biggest difference, as Renee Brown says, that these people were willing to let go of who they thought they should be to be who they were. Let that sentence sink in on you for a minute. These people, wholehearted people, were willing to let go of who they thought they should be to be who they were. Not confronted with who they thought they should be, who they wanted to be. Yes, they still struggle with some of these things of being, I'm not so-and-so enough, I'm not this enough. Yet they confronted it and embraced it. They embraced what it meant to be vulnerable in this area or that area. Now, the research on this is pretty profound. It's not just someone saying, you know, we have from 1 to 10. This is peer-reviewed stuff about satisfaction in relationships, satisfactions in life, Wholehearted people who embrace their vulnerabilities are heads and tails more satisfied, more happy, have better relationships than people who have excruciatingly revealed vulnerabilities. Thus, if you haven't guessed our word yet, today's love is vulnerable. Not a word we want to confront. For some, this may be excruciating. For some, this may be, may be good. Love is vulnerable in awareness. Love is vulnerable in ownership. And love is vulnerable in relationship. Vulnerable in awareness, vulnerable in ownership, and vulnerable in relationship. Let's talk first about 
vulnerability, being vulnerable in awareness. And I want to begin with a very, very easy question, which I'm sure all of you are able to answer. Who in here is perfect? If you had any doubts, talk to the gentleman in the back, because he will set you straight. <laughs> this is a rhetorical question. And we know that the right answer is no one. Statistically speaking, there's a true narcissist out of one every hundred people. So most likely one of you is saying, no one, because you know it's the right answer and you don't really believe it. Now I'll let you decide who that is. I'm not going there. <laughs> no one is perfect. Whether you believe it or not, this is a fact. And we have the human experience as well as scriptures to back it up. The different question is who in here or who out there, who in general is worthy of being loved, however? Now this question also, you know the right answer is everyone. That most likely there's someone in here who doesn't believe this either. That's shame talking. That's shame instead of embrace. Let's look at the difference here a little bit. This isn't like Thor's hammer to where you have to be worthy enough to pick it up. You have to be worthy enough to be loved. You have to be worthy enough to have God's love. You have to have, be worthy enough to have someone else love you. That's meritocracy. That's legalism. That's a whole lot of bad isms, which we ain't going to go there today. Everyone. Everyone, I don't just mean Christians, everyone in this world is worthy of being loved. Why? Because in this world, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Every single person in this room, every single person in this city, every single person in this state, every single person in this country, every single person in this world is worthy of being loved for the simple fact that they were made in the image of God. They were made amago dei, in the image of God, in the reflection, in the characteristics, molded by God, shaped by God. They were made in the image of God. Every single person. While this one isn't exactly the one you go to to prove this point, it does prove the point. Whoever sheds human blood, by human shall their blood be shed. For the image of God has God made mankind. Meaning that God has made humans so valuable that to shed their blood is a really big deal because in the image of God, you all, mankind, everybody was created in God's image. There is not a person that you can meet, have ever meet, will meet, that is not loved by God, created in His image. Now whether they're reflecting that really well, that's a whole different story. But there is not a person who is not made in the image of God. But unfortunately, we know what that means in a fallen world. Psalm 40, verses 11 and 12. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me for <sighs> troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. There are more sins implied than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. If you're breathing, that's true for you at some point. If you were ever breathing, that's true for you at some point. This is where many people live, and this is where shame starts. If you don't read the rest of the passage, if you don't read the rest of the scriptures that have to do with pointing this out, the rest of Psalm 40 goes, Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. Rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say the Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. 
Do not delay. Not only is there intrinsic value in being made in the image of God, but Scripture proves over and over and over again. I just chose from Psalm 40 because of this wording. Scripture proves over and over and over again that just because that God's image is broken and reflecting His image poorly does not mean that their worth is any less. Does not mean their worthiness to be loved is any less. Does not mean that their shame which we have, our shame we have, has any greater power. This tells us over and over and over again that yes, it's true that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now we look at this and we go, yeah, I know. The thing is, this is weirdly good news. You know why? Because it means we're all on the same playing field. It means that no matter what in life, you have that I don't, whatever I have that you don't, remember that circle earlier? None of that matters because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all equal. We're all level. There's nothing you can do, nothing I can do, to get ahead of each other in the race of who earns God's favor. You know why? Because you have it, because you're made in His image. You can't be loved by God more than me. I can't be loved by God more than you. Why? Because we're both made in the image of God. What does this do? Well, it tells us that even though our lives are broken in sin, the brokenness does not matter beyond a certain point. The fact that, yes, we have brokenness in our lives, as Dr. Edwards said Wednesday, uh, struggling does not mean you are broken in your worth or your worthiness to be loved. Just because you have a broken heart doesn't mean that you have a right to feel shameful because that's not to feel shame because that's not who you're made to be. You're made to be in the image of God. You are made to be loved and worthy of being loved. Having said that, I'm making a big point about it because the flip side of this is yes, you've got stuff going on in your life. You know what? I've got stuff going on in my life. If you're breathing, again, you've got stuff going on in your life, which causes this, which causes brokenness, which causes, causes barriers in between you and God and you with each other. The whole point is I'm making is just because one is true does not make the other false. We are messed up people who are made in the wonderful image of God and loved by our eternal Creator. Both are true. Now, while that matters is because we also need to apply that at our level. Just because you may sin differently than me, just because I may sin differently than you, just because we may apply the effects of our brokenness differently, does not mean that we're not on an unequal playing field. We're all sinners. We all foreshow the glory of God. We all sin. It just looks different. Why do we need to say this? Because when it comes to awareness, I'm not pointing any fingers in here. In fact, I will point them to me first and only me. I sure like to point out how other people are sinning and messing up and not falling and not reflecting the glory of God. And maybe I do now and then. We sure like to point on each other's. In fact, we even sometimes it's kind. Go back to last week's lesson. The whole point is, we're all on the same playing field. We all have sin in our life. We all have issues. 
They just look a little different. We all need to be aware of that, one, in our relationship with God, two, in our relationship with each other, and three, in our relationships with ourselves. Actually, those are, almost, those are mixed up, but regardless. A couple of scriptures. For we all stumble in many ways. Romans seven nineteen twenty, Paul writes, What I want to do, I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. It's the sin living in me that does it. We don't need this point hammered home necessarily. What awareness does of both truths, but also going a little bit deeper, is becoming aware of the way that you particularly reflect sin brokenness is this. Become, excuse me, becoming aware of not just that you struggle with sin, but what your particular struggles with sin are, is helpful in vulnerability. It's actually necessi- necessity in being vulnerable, because you have to know what your weak points are. You have to know how your struggles are. You have to know what your struggles are. You have to know if someone says something to you in kindness, go back, how to evaluate it. If that's true, what to do about it. The worst thing we can do in relationships of any kind is to try to pretend that we don't have the issues. Is try to pretend that we don't have something that's causing a barrier, that's causing some sort of shame. The first step may sound very basic, but I think some of you are aware Not everyone does this well. In fact, we all don't do it well at some point. Awareness means that we become aware of not just that we struggle with sin, but of what our particular struggles are. I'm not going to preach something that I don't model. I've struggled with depression for a year and a half. I've been a pornography addict since the first grade. Never had a problem with cigarettes or alcohol and drinking. Doesn't mean I haven't messed up there. I know what I need to watch out for. That's why Amy has access to my phone anytime. There's no there's no code on it. I know what my struggles are. Doesn't mean I do them well. Doesn't mean that I reflect it well. Doesn't mean that I hold myself accountable well. I try to know what my issues are. Why? Because that we struggle is different than what mine are. And awareness is integral to be able to do the next step. What does awareness do? A couple things. One, it allows us to see ourselves authentically. The only person we're fooling whenever we say, oh, I don't struggle with this, and you actually do, is yourself. And you're not even that good a liar to yourself. Here's something else which may hit home a little bit hard. Well, they all may hit a little bit hard. By admitting our faults to ourselves and to God, by being aware, we're actually showing ourselves authentic kindness. Remember the definition of kindness? Doing something that's useful, doing something that's needed. First of all, we need to do that to ourselves. And thirdly, it allows us to live ourselves authentically. You know the thing is, by admitting that I have struggles, it allows me to actually live like they're struggles. It allows me to actually say, yes, this is an issue of mine and I need to reflect my life, order my life around the fact that this is not good and I want to do something else about it. If I pretend or deny, I'm actually not living authentically to myself first, let alone anyone else. This leads, however, to the next step, which is ownership. I don't like this one. 
you'll understand why hopefully in a minute. You ever find it interesting that Jesus, for instance here, the scriptures say, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even death. remain here and watch with me. And go fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You ever notice that Jesus never feels it necessary to apologize for feeling afraid, for feeling scared, for feeling vulnerable, for wishing that something else would happen? You ever notice that no gospel writer ever has to say, well, you know, you know, Jesus was that, but that's not really how we should face things. You ever notice how Jesus owns what he feels? I don't want this God, but your will, but not mine. He even tells his disciples right before, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Watch with me. Help me face this together. He owns what he's feeling. You ever notice how Jesus constantly in the Gospels, you may not think of it this way, owns what he feels and is vulnerable with how he feels. He gets angry. He gets sad. He gets frustrated with the Pharisees. He always owns it. Why is ownership important? Well, here's the thing. This is beyond my purview. But there are certain researchers nowadays who say that we live in a numbing society meaning we don't really talk about our feelings. We don't talk about how we react to things. Instead, we try to deal with them, either by medications, which are sometimes necessary, sometimes not, by food, by entertainment, by work, other drugs, alcohol. We try to numb however we feel, especially when it comes to certain things we don't like to talk about, like when we feel vulnerable. When we feel scared, when we feel hurt, when we feel angry, when we feel frustrated, we don't like to talk about these things, especially beyond maybe our immediate circle. Even in our immediate circle, sometimes we don't want to talk about them. The thing about numbing, and I'm not saying everyone does this, but therapists tell us that when we try to numb one emotion, we're them all. This is the horrible, horrible danger of actual depression. It's not just something which you feel sad about. It's that that depression actually impacts your entire self and becomes a physiological problem to where you can't feel. We do this to ourselves sometimes. Even with health things. You know what ministers are guilty of all the time? Doing so much kingdom work, doing so much for the good of the church that we neglect our own feelings, our own families, and our own health. Why ownership matters? Four reasons. One, it's not an excuse. Some people say, well, if I own something that I'm feeling, that's an excuse for how I act. No, 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 no. Hopefully, we tell our boys this all the time. Is it okay to be angry? Yes. Is it okay to be upset? Yes. What's not okay? Acting and making a poor decision. There's a difference. Admitting and owning what you feel does not excuse what you do about it by any means. The two are separate. In fact, though, what people tend to do is blame. And as one researcher put it, blame is a discharge of pain and discomfort, oftentimes at someone else. Ownership says, no, 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 I felt this way because of what happened to me. Not you. Happens all the time in our, with our kids. Well, so-and-so made me do this, did they? So-and-so made me feel this way, did they? 
So and so maybe the fact that you're having to deal with something painful, something uncomfortable, something that you don't want to deal with does not mean it's someone else's fault. To own it makes it possible to actually deal with within your own heart. In fact, it's actually courageous to own what you feel instead of running away from it. Thomas Wood backed me up on this. I came across something, and I don't know if it's true or not. I'm letting you know, but if it's true, it's awesome. I came across something that said that the actual original Latin word for courage is the word cur, which actually means to live as your authentic self. Less. Back me up on it. If you don't know now, let me know. I'll correct it if I am wrong. His wheels are turning now. That's what he's thinking about the rest of the sermon. <laughs> if that's true, though, to live as you actually would, do we ever feel like it's weakness to admit, I feel scared, I feel hurt, I feel bad? Do we ever feel like it's weak? Do we ever feel like it's bad to admit that? I think it's courageous because it actually says, this is what I feel, and I'm owning it, and I'm putting a term to it. And it's actually a source of strength. You know why I have no problem admitting that I've been a porn addict since first grade? Because you can't do anything about it to make me feel bad. I know it. If I say it, you got nothing on me. Because I know it. In fact, I'm holding you accountable for holding me accountable. But I admit it. And together we can actually attack the problem together and actually maybe solve it. Isolation does nothing when it comes to these sorts of things. In fact, it only makes it worse. Owning our feelings, owning our vulnerabilities, owning these things is a source of strength, a weakness. This is what this word means, as a matter of fact. I was going to say, we have a word for this in Christianity, we just don't like to do it. Case in point, when was the last time you took someone's confession outside of your own home? Not in the Catholic sense, but when was the last time that you were with someone and they said, you know what, I'm really struggling with this. Hopefully, this week. There's a good chance, though, not. Because we don't like to confess one another to one another, even though James flat out says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. There's not getting much, can't get around that. Pray for one another that you may be healed. First John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What we're talking about owning our feelings, owning our vulnerabilities, all we're talking about is confession. But admittedly, it's not something that we do well as a church. Why? Because we're afraid to get hurt. We're afraid that someone will bring it up. We're afraid to be vulnerable because we have the wrong attitude about it when in fact vulnerability increases strength, it's courageous, it helps us attack the problem, it, not, it keeps us from blaming anyone else, it, creates, it doesn't create excuses. It creates a foundation of relationship, which we'll get to in just a minute. Vulnerable in ownership. It helps reorient our view of our faults and sins towards wholeheartedness and towards worthiness. If we're able to own what we do, what we feel, our faults, our weaknesses. One, we can't blame anyone else. And two, no one else can point them out for us. No one can say, did you know Thomas was a... Yeah. We know this in marriage. Oftentimes, what's the worst thing that you can do if you have a conflict with your spouse? Well, you always do this, or you always do that. You know what that's trying to do? It's trying to create a barrier of shame to try to help change the other person's behavior. Does it ever work? No! What does work? Lovely. 
I did this. Do. It builds relationship, not puts barriers. It builds trust, not breaks it down. It creates accountability instead of fear and shame and darkness. Which leads us to our last one. Vulnerable in relationship. You've noticed hopefully a trend when it comes to these words. Almost every one of them has to do with relationship. I'll leave you to figure that one out. Why? That was a very weird way to say that sentence, wasn't it? I'll leave you to figure out why. Vulnerable in relationship. I'm going to mention him again. Wednesday, we had a great class with a uh, professional therapist, Dr. Jack Edwards from Tennessee. If you haven't watched it, it's online, YouTube, Facebook, our website. Go check it out. We cover some good ground. One of the things he said there, and I actually mentioned it in the bulletin argue again, because article again, because I was so like, yes, this is a great way to say this. He says, comes to intimacy. And it doesn't just mean marital intimacy. He means emotional depth. You remember what he said, guys, who were here Wednesday night? Trust plus vulnerability equals Trust plus vulnerability equals intimacy. So the question is, how do you create trust? How do you create relationships? Based on vulnerability, trust, based on all these things. If we're attacking it like this, it seems kind of big and confusing and hard. For some people it is. Well, I would refer back to all the other sermons I'm doing as far as how to create relationship. But one of the biggest things about relationship is that you can't do it in isolation. You have to be with people. You have to spend time with people. You actually have to be in each other's lives. And eventually, you figure out who you think you can trust and who you can. I'm not saying that we need to be vulnerable like I just did with all of you. For some, pe- for some things in my, not in my skeleton closet, because I'm trying to have skeleton, but in the closet that I really don't admit, I don't want to share with everybody, and that's okay. I know who I can share it with, and I do. How do I know that? Because I spent time around people. And eventually, yes, you have to take a step and say, I'm going to put myself out there, possibly to be hurt, maybe, to see if this person is trustworthy. And if they are, if they honor that, what an amazing thing that is. How many people in here have been blessed? Maybe don't raise your hands. But how many people in here have been blessed to have a true, honest, amazing best friend who you can honestly tell anything to? And you know they'd still be your best friend. What a gift that is. If you never had that, you know what an amazing thing that could be. Hopefully that's your marriage. Or hopefully that's something, hopefully you have someone like that in your life because it's an amazing thing to trust someone with something that could hurt you and yet they honor it. Amazing thing. And not just us, Circle, but the church in general right now, we're kind of failing at it. In fact, that's one of the number one criticisms of the big C church from the outside. Is People try to come in, they fear the Christians are too judgmental. Go look it up. Barna, USA Today, they all say it. We're too judgmental. Why? I think in part because we're not vulnerable ourselves. And because we don't realize, number one here, that we're all messed up, it's just a matter of how. Relationships. What if we actually... Is that my sermon timer? (laughs) You're done! 
what if we actually based our relationship with each other? Now, this is going to sound really both simple and radical. What if we actually based our relationship with each other, like actually me with you and me with you and me with you, on Christ's relationship with us? For God loved the Word in this way, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What do you say to someone who is willing to die for you to make you better? Philippians 2, 6-8, through 8, Who being in very nature God, Jesus, by the way, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let me ask you this. How much more vulnerable do you have to get besides giving up godliness to become this and dying in a horrible way? How much more vulnerable do you have to get What does that say, though, if that's the length someone was willing to go for you? What does it say that someone did that and is here for you, waiting for you to draw closer to Him? Christ became most vulnerable that we may be redeemed by our very own vulnerability. Go backwards through this. Well, actually, go, go any way you want it through us. The basis of our relationship with Christ depends on, one, our awareness of our state and our ownership of it in confession that we need what Christ offers. Here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, our relationship with each other should be honestly no different. It doesn't mean I can die for your soul. Remember the thing I said before? Nope, don't do that. I'll break it. I'd break that. <laughs> But what's a way that in my vulnerability and your vulnerability that we can help each other become more Christ-like, become better? As Christ redeems us through our vulnerability, may we honor each other's vulnerability in Christ-like love. Now this takes relationship. We know that Christ, we know that God is trustworthy, it's faithful. God is love. God is holy. We know that God's not going anywhere. And we know that God is the ultimate example of what it means to be trustworthy, faithful, loving, giving us everything we need. What if we actually set our minds to be that for every other person in this room as much as we could? What if we actually set our minds to be that for everyone we meet? I don't know what that means. For you, I don't know what that means for this relationship or that relationship, but it takes relationship. Remember what kindness was? It actually takes finding out what they need. So combine these two. It's kind to figure out how to honor someone else's vulnerability that they may be strengthened, encouraged, and made more Christ-like by it. This isn't a relationship sermon or a therapeutic sermon. This is a God sermon because this is exactly how God treats us. But it's our responsibility to reflect the very nature of God both back to him, to each other, and into the world. Therefore, I ask you today, I ask you today, three things. Got to have three. How have you been dealing with the shame in your life, and has it been working? How have you addressed your own vulnerabilities, and has it led to Christ or somewhere else? And finally, first and foremost, 
Have you first trusted Christ with your vulnerability, admitting to Him that you need His grace and redemption because you're as messed up as the next guy, maybe even worse? And from that, try to have a semblance of that relationship with someone else in this room? Vulnerability is a buzzword nowadays and it gets a little bit of a bad rap. But here's the thing. Trust plus vulnerability equals intimate relationships. Trust plus vulnerability equals a place where people, when they have a porn addiction or an alcohol addiction or they're having trouble in their marriage or having trouble with their job but they just don't know where to go, it makes church the first place to go, not the last. We should be that. And it takes loving people in vulnerability, in Christ-likeness. No one said it was easy, but love is worth it.